Well, the text that we just read is a text that's popular when folks are thinking about friendship and the nature and shape of friendship. Uh, a lot of individuals have written on this topic of friendship in our culture more recently. Uh, in fact, one, a guy by the name of Wesley Hill, has written a book called Spiritual Friendship, Finding Love in the Church as a Celibate Gay Christian. Now, to be clear, uh, I, I'm not really a fan of using the title gay Christian. I, I don't think that that's a title that should be used. Uh, I think identifying as a gay Christian underestimates the transformative power of the gospel to change rebels into Christians and saints. Our identity is Christians who have been changed and shaped by the nature of the gospel. He does make a few interesting points, though, in his book about the demise of friendship in Western society. He says things are getting bad for friendship at home. Now, he makes uh, a number of points as to why he thinks that we aren't good friends anymore. Uh, One is, he says, that we have this tendency, this Freudian tendency to see all relationships at their heart as being erotic. And he says we have have that sort of deep in our bones, and that's the motivation behind relationships. Second, uh, we have elevated marriage and the nuclear family as the most significant human relationship above friendship. And third, he says we have this staunch individualism. We, we like to isolate ourselves because we don't like to be hindered from the kind of freedom that we can experience to find the most happiness when we are on our own. Now, this is Left Hill looking for answers to how we can seek positively meaningful relationships and do so as someone like him who is committed to a life of singleness. How are you going to find meaningful relationship if you are not planning to get married and and to have children and that sort of thing? Well, interestingly, he uses this relationship between Jonathan and David that we just read about and their love as a kind of blueprint for that relationship. And now to be clear, Hill does not argue that Jonathan and David have a kind of erotic love. Some have said that. But he does argue for a kind of going public with friendship showing the specialness and the uniqueness of it. Of course, uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the best idea. In fact, someone asked my eight-year-old Jack just the other day who his best friend was. And he looked back and he said, I don't have a best friend. My other friends would be really sad if they thought I had a best friend. Thought he had kind of a good point there. But we do live in a culture that longs for meaningful relationship. Did you know that? I'm guessing that you didn't have to read a study to know that. You probably know that from your own experience in your own home. You probably know that from relationships that you have with others who are lonely and talk about how they feel lonely. Of course, if you do look at statistics, you'll notice that a survey found that 30% of millennials recently said that they feel lonely either often or always and are more likely to be able to say that they either have zero friends, zero close friends, or zero acquaintances. Just think about that. 30% of of millennials are lonely. They don't feel like they have meaningful relationships. And not only that, we know that in our culture, we have 50% of marriages that are ending in divorce, and around 50% 50 of Americans are single. 50% of young people don't have dating relationships. But are Jonathan and David, when we think about ourselves from that cultural context, where we know that we are struggling with connectivity, even though we have all of the social media outlets, we still feel alone. We have to ask ourselves, is friendship the main point of what we find when we come to Jonathan and David? I mean, are these just two guys who are looking to make a friend? Well, are they merely a model of healthy friendship? Or are we maybe reading our culture back into this relationship that we just read about in our text this morning? 
Well, now we're in our, our series. We're back in our series on David. He is an ordinary man who became an extraordinary king. And we find this in First, uh, first Samuel 20. So far, we've seen that God rejected King Saul for David, who is God's spirit-anointed king, his Messiah, who hails from this no-name family in the backwoods town of Bethlehem. And God has called him up to be his king. He is a king after God's own heart. He becomes a giant slayer like we saw. We find that later, uh, the people of Israel are singing out, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now, Jonathan... Saul's son, the heir apparent, made a covenant with David in 1 Samuel 18, while Saul tried to kill David four times in one day. We just read this. Twice with a spear, once with men sent to his house in the middle of the night, and four times he fled. The fourth time he fled to Samuel, the prophet, where the Spirit of God only foiled Saul's attempts as he was chasing David by causing Saul to fall down naked as he prophesied day and night. That's where we left off last time. David's pretty sure, after those four attempts, he thinks that Saul's trying to kill him. What do you think? Seems pretty obvious. So when we pick up the story today in 1 Samuel 20, David is running for his life. He's God's spirit-anointed king, but the present king of Israel, Saul, is after his life. Now, our big idea this morning as we begin, it's going to shape everything that we look at, is this. It's that God calls us to show steadfast love to Christ and his people. God calls us to show steadfast love to Christ and his people. I want to just pray for us as we begin this morning. Would you pray pray with me? You can pray for me too as we go. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you that you are our great God and King. Father, we praise you that you are a covenant making God and a covenant keeping God, that you have loved us first and you love us still. And this morning as we come before you in your word, Lord, we pray that your spirit would help us to have eyes to see you high and lifted up. Father, we pray that you would use this text this morning to transform and shape our lives so that we look just a little bit more like your son, Jesus. And it's the great name of Jesus that we do pray. Amen. First point this morning we find in verses 1 to 11, that's this. A covenant is a refuge amidst the storms of life. Covenant is a refuge amidst the storms of life. Now, you'll remember that our story begins this morning with David running for his life to Jonathan, who is in Ramah. That's his hometown. Now, David's experienced God as his shield, miraculously saving him from Saul's hand again and again. Now, God is his shield God is David's shield. He sees him as his shield. But notice he's still running. In other words, he's not like the guy who has a Harley and he rides it without his helmet because, you know, God's sovereign and all. That's not him. No, this is the guy that understands the sovereignty of God and his responsibility, and he is running for his life. And when David tells Jonathan that his dad Saul is trying to kill him, notice that Jonathan is doubtful. He's, he's Saul's most trusted confidant. And he just vowed to Jonathan, Saul did, that he would not injure David in chapter 19. So David has to make a vow before the Lord in verse 3 saying, there is but a step between me and death. I don't think you understand the situation. And Jonathan trusts David. And he responds, whatever you say, I will do for you. Now look at what David says he wants him to do in verses 5 to 7. This is what he says. 
David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. And if your father misses me at all, then say, David, earnestly ask leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. And if he says, Good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Now, the first meal of the new moon was a ritual meal. And as a ritual meal, it meant that you needed to take part in this meal as someone who was ritually clean. So David is anticipating that whenever Saul shows up on this first day and and David's not there sitting at the king's table eating for this meal, that it must signal that David is ritually unclean. So the, the second day is when he is suspecting that David is going to take, I mean, Saul is going to take note that David is absent and there's something else that's going on. And so he says, on this day, if your father asks for some kind of excuse, here's what I want you to tell him. And he tells him, just to say, I am offering a sacrifice with my family in Bethlehem. So this is the plan that he has for him. Now, David asked Jonathan to cover up for him at the second meal. And notice that Jonathan is willing to help David, loves David. But don't miss in this moment why it is that David is running to Jonathan for refuge from Jonathan's father. I mean, it might seem like the worst possible place to go. But he says in verse 8 why he has come to him. He says, therefore, deal kindly, notice that word kindly, with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt with me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? See, he asked Jonathan here to deal kindly with him. Now that word for kindly, it it doesn't show this in the English, but it is actually a a Hebrew word chesed, a word that actually speaks of a kind of steadfast love that was shown in the Bible for others. And here Jonathan is asked to deal kindly with him, show this kind of love with him because of the covenant of the Lord. This is the covenant that you'll remember Jonathan made with David back in 1 Samuel 18. Now this word for kindly here, it, it is a steadfast love. It is used 250 times in the Old Testament and is often translated, this word for kindly, steadfast love. It carries this idea of, of love, kindness, and affection. But it's not just love, kindness, and affection. I, I like what Dale Ralph Davis says. He says this, it is not merely love, but loyal love. It is not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. See, David asked Jonathan to show him a committed, loyal, steadfast love. And he asked him to do this because of the covenant of the Lord that Jonathan made with him. Now, in the Bible, you will notice covenant is a a pretty significant word throughout as well. It describes a, a committed relationship between two parties. So God, you'll remember that he makes covenants with individuals in the Bible. He made a covenant with Abraham and with Noah and with Moses. But notice here, 
that when a covenant is made, it often, it often included this ritual where they would cut sacrificial animals in part. And the, the parties that were going to make this covenant would walk between them. And in doing so, they were basically saying, I invite the same fate of these animals upon myself if I fail to be faithful and steadfast in the covenant that we are making here today. See, humans can also make covenants with other humans before God. We see that throughout the Bible and here in particular. Now, this isn't completely foreign to us. It just is a a kind of concept that we've sort of fallen away from really understanding the meaning and significance of. Marriage is a kind of covenant. It's a covenant in which uh, one man and one woman come together before God, making a covenant to love one another steadfastly till death do them part. That's the nature of a marriage covenant. In fact, when you go to a wedding, I know that you probably get, if you're a woman, really excited about thinking about all of the different flowers and the beauty of the occasion and the destination, the location, and what's the dress going to look like. And you're thinking about all of the accoutrements of a wedding. But if you really think about a wedding, a wedding is kind of like, a, in a sense, kind of a, a legal affair, You are coming before a host of witnesses saying, I am committed to this man till death do us part. And if I am unfaithful, then I'm inviting harm upon myself before God himself. Now, I know that's not as sweet as a lot of you have thoughts of when you think about marriage, but that's it. That's what it is. And here we find that there is the same kind of idea of steadfast love that is being called for in a covenant. See, a couple promises to love one another steadfastly. And you'll remember that that popular line in a a marriage. You are to love one another steadfastly, what? In sickness and in health. For richer or for poor. In good times and bad times. Till death do you part. When you say that, you might not actually think about what it means, but it begins to mean a lot when you actually walk through life together with another individual facing circumstances and situations that you did not anticipate. Some of you find yourself in a marriage, and all of a sudden you find that 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 person is sick and you are a caretaker. Not something you anticipated, but something that God has called you to, and that's where steadfastness of love sets in. Maybe you're one of those people who is in a marriage and you married a guy that was pretty successful and then he lost it all. And you were richer and now you are poor. And God is calling you to be steadfast in your love for this man that you have married. Maybe it could be that in your relationship you find out that you couldn't have kids, not something you anticipated. And and you were called to steadfastly love one another. And all of this you are doing before God. And this is where love really begins to take on a God-like shape and character is when the steadfastness attached to that love really begins to glow. And that's exactly what happens in marriage. Well, catch this. We live in a culture that needs to be reminded of this character of a steadfastness in love. Love is not just an emotion that you have in a moment. It is a steadfastness that lasts a lifetime. We live in a culture where 50% of our marriages end in divorce. Now, I know that some have said that in the past it was popular to say that the same is true of Christian marriages. It's half of them end in divorce. That, that's actually been shown not to be true. Uh, w. Bradford Wilcox, he was a sociologist out of University of Virginia, did a study and found that uh, actually it's 35%. You're 35% less likely to divorce if you are a Protestant Christian who goes to church regularly. 
So going to church is a great thing to help and encourage your marriage. But do we as a culture wholly understand steadfast love? Think about it. When our foster care system is absolutely exploding, we, we barely can find people to take care of our kids. When half of marriages are ending in divorce and millennials are the low, loneliest generation yet, could it be that we have lost sight of steadfast love? And if so, we need to find it again. Well, here David vows that he has been faithful in all things. He even invites death on himself as he has been guilty of something that he knows not. In other words, David and Jonathan testify to the innocence of David as this innocent, this innocent sufferer. And amidst the chaos of a world that seems to be turning in on him, David runs for refuge to this beautiful covenant relationship with Jonathan, banking on him showing him steadfast love. And don't miss this. That steadfast love reflects the very nature of God. Do you hear me? When, when Jonathan shows David this steadfast love amidst the chaos of his life, Jonathan looks like his God who shows steadfast love to his covenant people. God is the ultimate covenant-keeping God who shows steadfast love and never quits his people. And Hesed often describes the steadfast love of God for his people. In fact, in that famous text in Exodus 34, 6-7, where God says, here is who I am. Let me tell you about my character. He says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. God, our God, the God that we serve, that we love, is a God who is steadfast in his love for us. And David is here willing to bank his life on the steadfast love of his friend Jonathan. I'm just curious, do you, do you have friends like that? I don't think it's wrong to look at this text and say, I need friends like Jonathan. Do you have a marriage like that? This morning, as you're thinking about your love for your husband, is your love steadfast? You might say, well, I don't know if you know how hard it is to love him. Well, isn't that where the steadfast starts to light up? Isn't that where the steadfastness might even surprise your husband with your willingness to love him when he is not so lovable? And husbands, what about your wives? This morning, would your wife say, man, my husband, the thing that I would say about his love, it might not be perfect, it might not always shine and sparkle, but it is steadfast. He never gives up on me. That is the chief way that I think we show the power of the gospel in marriage is through the steadfastness of our love for one another. And what about you as a single person? Are you thinking to yourself, I don't really need to be steadfast in relationships until like, I meet the one? What if you don't meet the one? Will you never be able to show this kind of steadfastness? Or is it that God has actually called all of his people to be steadfast in their relationships and the love that they show for others? Surely in different ways, in the different natures of relationships. But aren't we called to be defined as a steadfast people in our love? Could it be that we have lost sight of the beauty of the glories of committed love that looks so much like God and that's why we aren't so warm towards God and others anymore? Well, notice the second thing here. The nature of the covenant is loving one another as your own soul. That's what we find in verses 12 to 17. So catch this. Verses 12 to 17, Jonathan makes another oath. This time assuring David that he will find out what Saul's plans are and that he will protect David. But catch what Jonathan says in verses 13 to 17. He says this. Look there with me. In verse 13. He says, 
But should it please my father to do you harm, Jonathan speaking to David, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it, disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. And when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on God's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. See, Jonathan invites the Lord himself to bring harm upon Jonathan if he doesn't protect David and keep his life. Do you see this? David's in danger. Jonathan, from worldly perspective, is in a pretty good spot. He is the king's son with the king's resources in a really nice house with really good meals. He's really pretty safe. He doesn't really need to step out. There's nothing he really needs according to worldly standards. And yet here he is coming to David and he is saying, David, I am entering into this with you in such a way that I am taking the danger that is upon you upon myself. That's the nature of the covenant that he's making. He is binding the outcome of David to Jonathan's outcome. Verse 14 even opens the door to the possibility that Jonathan might die in seeking David's safety. That's how much he's for David. So he asked David to keep steadfast love for Jonathan even in death by not cutting off his descendants, which David will actually follow through with in inviting Mephibosheth to his table in 2 Samuel 9. So new kings... It was, pretty, it was pretty standard fare that if you came to the throne that you wiped out whatever regime preceded you. You can read about this in 1 Kings. So in 1 Kings, you'll find that Bashar, Zimri, and Jehu, they all purged the previous dynasties. But also take note that he not only asked for David's safety, but his victory, asking that the Lord cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And he has this this great, vast vision of who David is before God and what David is going to accomplish for God that is not just in Israel and parochial and locial, but it's actually something that extends the far reaches of the earth, his enemy's gates. But don't miss this. Jonathan doesn't realize, I don't believe, that Saul just called David his enemy in 1 Samuel nineteen seventeen. So in doing so, he's even asking that David would overthrow his father. So Jonathan is unwittingly asking the Lord to cut off his father from the face of the earth. And then in verse 16, Jonathan doubles down on the covenant that he made with David back in 1 Samuel 18. He says, I'm not just making a covenant with you. I want to make a covenant with your whole household, with all of your line. Now, did you see the the ground of this agreement here? He says it in verse 17. He says, and Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as his own soul. I know that some has, have come to this text and they've, they've looked at this love that we find here and elsewhere for David and Jonathan. And they want to argue that perhaps David has a, a kind of homosexual love for Jonathan. In 2 Samuel one twenty six, David will say at Jonathan's death, your love for me was wonderful, even more wonderful than the love of a woman. But don't miss the context of what's happening here. That's short-sighted. That's not seeing what, what's happening in context. David 
is God's spirit-anointed king, whom Jonathan swore a political allegiance to in 1 Samuel 18. And here he makes another covenant with David between their houses, their generations that are to come. And in doing so, he is loading his speech with this political language. Now, one thing, going back to Wesley Hill, that I think he gets right in our book is, is that we have conceptions of meaningful friendship that have been tainted and harmed with a culture that is consumed with thoughts of erotic love. Clearly, Jonathan's love for David is more than mere politics here. He loves him. But it's not less than political. In fact, there's a grander thing that's going on here in the story. It's not wrong to look here, I don't believe, to see a picture of deep, meaningful friendship. But it's not merely that. See, David and Jonathan are key players in the grand plan of redemptive history. David is the Messiah who points forward to a greater coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Jonathan models how we should love King Jesus in trusting our futures to him. Now just think about this for a minute. I don't know how you think about yourself when you come to Christ. Sometimes I come a little bit stingy and thinking way too, of my, too much of myself. Y'all ever do that? You ever come to God and you're like, you know, I kind of want more than what I think you're giving. I think I owe more than what you're giving. And also I think I'm a lot better than you realized God. That is not the posture of Jonathan coming to God's king. Did you see this? Jonathan comes and he's not looking around and thinking to himself, you know, I have a lot more to bring to the table than this greater David does. I mean, have you not considered who I am? The greatness of me. I mean, Jonathan could have found his identity in all sorts of things which would have prohibited him from submitting to King David. There were a number of things. Jonathan could have found his identity in his job. Uh, He was a prince. He was about to become a king. I don't know anybody here who has a job that good. He could have found his identity in his power. I mean, he, he literally had the authority of the king and the crown behind him. He could have found his authority in his name. By the way, he was nobility. Could have found his fame or his uh, identity in his family parties. They had really good parties, feasts. David came to his feast. He didn't go to David's feast. He had his choice, I'm sure, of the, the women of the kingdom. He was a mighty warrior. He, he had a great reputation. He was even a godly man. He had an excellent retirement plan. And the, the list just goes on. This was a, a guy who did not have much that he needed. And yet David is the one who is running for his life while Jonathan seems it all. But Jonathan, here's what Jonathan knows. Jonathan knows that David is God's spirit-anointed king and he submits himself to God's king who loved him. David loved Jonathan and Jonathan loved David because they understood who David was. See, Jonathan foreshadows how all of us, I think, should respond to God's greater king, Jesus, who offers us a new and better covenant than Jonathan had to offer. It is one that promises us not just a future and inheritance, but forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with our Heavenly Father. So don't miss this. You you can't have God as your father without receiving his son as your king. And Jonathan understood that. There's a third thing that we see here. That's this. The covenant is between David, Jonathan, and the Lord in verses 18 to 23. Now, we're going to move quickly through this point, but just notice in verses 18 to 23 that they come up with a plan. He's going to shoot three arrows towards a rock, Jonathan is, as David is hiding in a field, and he's going to scream out to the boy that is going to retrieve the arrows, either one of two things. Uh, First, he will say, if 
if the coast is clear, that the arrows are on this side of the rock. But if the coast is not clear, he's going to say, uh, I think the arrows are beyond you, signaling that David is in danger. And then in verse 23, notice that he closes this all, this plan, saying, Behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. He is committed. His covenant is eternal as God is here with him and David. But notice a fourth point, that's this. The covenant with God's Messiah cost Jonathan a father and a kingdom. Coming to this Christ, this Messiah, cost Jonathan everything in verses 24 to 34. See, Jonathan David's plan, it unfolds in verses 24 to 34, just as David anticipated. Saul notices that David is absent on the first day. He chalks it up to being ritually unclean. But on the second day, Saul smells that something's up, and he asks Jonathan, where's David? Well, Jonathan follows the script, says, you know, he's making a sacrifice in Bethlehem. And that's where we pick up with Saul's response in verses 30 to 34. Here's what he says. Verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, Neither you nor the kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan said, answered Saul, his father, Why should he put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because father had disgraced him. See, Saul's response here, it reveals how costly Jonathan's covenant with David is. See, first notice that it it cost Jonathan's relationship with his father. Now, this is one of those topics I think that is interesting and significant culturally. So many of our families look like Jonathan and Saul here. In fact, maybe you've had this kind of experience at your Thanksgiving table where somebody's, you know, risen up and thrown a spear at you or something. But statistics show that one of the greatest indicators of a flourishing child is having a dad in the home. So many kids don't have a dad in the home and even fewer have a good dad and a husband. Jonathan had a dad in the home, but he wasn't a good guy. Saul was was not a man who loved the Lord. He was self-centered. He rejected God's king. And this was a problem. I mean, just remember the, the very law of God, the Ten Commandments. The fifth commandment is in Exodus twenty twelve that you are to honor your father and your mother, that it may go long, that it may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So there's a promise of long days if you are faithful to loving your father and mother. It is part of loving God and honoring your father and mother. And here Jonathan is caught in this really weird place where he is called to honor the king. And yet at the same time, honor his father. He's supposed to love David and honor Saul. And they're at war with one another, and he seems to find himself here in the middle. So what do you do when your father sets himself against God's Messiah? Maybe you've experienced that. I mean, how do you honor your father while loving God's Christ? Notice here, Saul is infuriated against Jonathan. He calls him the son of a perverse, rebellious woman. I'm sure his wife loved that. Now, we don't actually have record that she was 
a, a, a woman that was more rebellious or perverse than others. We don't have any record of that. It seems more likely what's happening here is that Saul is angry and he's, he's sort of just cursing at, you know, at, at Jonathan. I think it would be kind of the same equivalent with bad language mixed in of saying something like, well, this is why you're your mother's son. It couldn't be mine. I wouldn't do that. My genes don't do this. That's your, your mother's genes. It's just showing themselves. And then you'll notice that Saul hurls a spear at Jonathan just as he did three times prior at David in the previous chapters. So there's a real sense in which Jonathan has entered into the sufferings of David. And Saul has distanced himself from Jonathan, treating him more like an enemy than a son. And the rest of Jonathan's days, Jonathan displays what it looks like, I believe, to honor your father who has set himself against God's Messiah while fully giving one's life to the true Messiah. See, Jonathan trusted his future to the Christ. Jesus would later tell his disciples in Luke 14, 26, that we too can expect this kind of thing. Do you remember that? Luke 14, 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Here we have a, a picture of what it means to have steadfast love for Christ. Catch this. Faithfulness to Christ takes priority over every other relationship. If you love Jesus, that takes priority over every other relationship. And notice, that includes even your own life. Even your own desires. Even your own wants are ultimately submissive to Christ before you are submissive to them. Do you see that? So in other words, your life isn't like, well, if I want this, God made me, I must be made this way, and so it's okay. No, according to the scriptures, what they say is, is that we are broken, we want things we shouldn't, and even those desires ought to be laid before the throne of Christ himself. See, Christ calls us to honor our father and mother, but our ultimate allegiance is to God's son. See, Christ calls us to honor earthly kings, but our ultimate allegiance is to Christ as king. Now, we have many who have experienced this in our body. You have lost family members because you have put your faith in Christ. Um, I know a brother who got baptized in an evangelical church, and so his dad wrote him off, wouldn't go to the baptism, and uh, their relationship changed forevermore unless God changes and restores that. Some of you have experienced similar kinds of experiences. But honoring Christ in your Father, that is something that might be tough. But remember this, if that's you today where you find yourself in a family relationship that is strained for your love of Christ, there is nothing new under the sun. And Christ is glorious and he has called you to be faithful to him above all things. But not only does it cost him his father, notice that it costs Jonathan his kingdom. In his anger, Saul makes a kind of true statement in verse 31. Did you see what he said? For as long as David lives, you and your kingdom will not be established. Following God's Christ cost Jonathan his crown. Now to be sure, Jonathan understands that it was never his crown in the first place. But covenant with David meant slamming the door on any dream of an earthly kingdom and a crown. Catch this. This world is trying to market vapor to you. I'm not talking about vapes. I'm talking about vapor. 
This world is trying to tell you that you need this next thing, and if you have this thing, it's going to make you happy, when the Bible tells you that most of these things that are being marketed to you are passing away, and they're part of a world that's passing away. They want to have you spend all of your life on finding your identity in all kinds of things that are constantly being eaten by moths and rusted away by rust. Maybe today that's you. Maybe you're struggling to find your identity in your, your car, your 401k, your title at work, your boyfriend's looks and job. Like, he needs to look a certain way and have a certain income for me to be able to like, actually feel like I have an identity. The latest phone. And the list just goes on and on, doesn't it? We just find ourselves in all kinds of things, our identities, other than Christ. And, and many of these things are very good things. But as we, we often say, these are good things, but, but bad gods, right? Things that actually begin to shape us and we begin to put our trust in. And Jonathan had plenty of things that he could have put on that list, including an actual throne and an actual crown. It wasn't a metaphor for him. It wasn't like, you know, sometimes we talk about like, hey, we just need to like stop trying to be our own little sovereigns. Jonathan's like, no, like I actually have a throne. I actually have a crown and a scepter. They're like making it right now, gold, jewels, and all that. This is the man who actually set it all down for the sake of Christ. And he was handing it over to a shepherd boy. It was God's shepherd boy. Jonathan invested in God with his future instead of investing in the world that's passing away. And that meant investing in God's king. See, Jonathan was storing up treasures in heaven. I wonder if Jesus had Jonathan in mind when he tells his disciples in Matthew 19, 29, and every one of you who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake, catch this, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You hear the beauty of that promise for someone that has lost a family member because of their faithfulness for Jesus? For the person that lost a job for being faithful for Jesus? For the missionary who went to a faraway land, never to see their families again, to die on foreign soil, only to know that they are promised that they will receive a hundredfold and will receive eternal life? It was Jonathan's eye on the kingdom of God that drove him to hand over his earthly crown. He trusted his future with God, no matter what earthly treasures it cost him. Can you say that? Have you calculated the costs and rewards using the Bible's math? Has God so captured your heart that you can hand over your earthly crowns that you find your identity in for the greater crown of eternal life? See, Jonathan, coven, Jonathan his covenant with David was so costly, but catch this response in verse 34. Jonathan He's, he's thinking about all that he's giving up. And what does he do? The thing that all of us should do, he grieved. But his grief looks a little bit strange. See, Jonathan is grieved, just as you expect, with so many losses. But he's not grieved over the things that most of us might be grieved over. He's not grieved over the things that he left behind. Did you notice what he's grieved over? What his heart runs to in this moment of loss? Jonathan was grieved for David. Did, did you catch that? He's calculating all of the things that have been sacrificed for his love for the king. But the thing that really has his heart is not what he's left behind or what he's going to lose or the fact that he might die. His heart is tied to David for the way his father had disgraced him. See, Jonathan loved David as his own soul and he grieved for sin against David. This isn't mere friendship. David isn't a normal guy. This is a love for God's king. But finally, fifth, the covenant means a refuge of peace amidst the storms of life. 
In verses 35 to 42, Jonathan signals David in the field on that third day, just as they had agreed, shooting the three arrows and then telling the boy to go grab them and screaming out, is not the arrow beyond you? But I love how in verse 40, he goes off script. Did you notice in verse 40, he gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go carry them to the city. Signal's been made. He says, I want you to take all of my my weaponry with you. So Jonathan comes unarmed is an added assurance that David is safe with him. You're not just safe with my word. You're safe with my weapons down. I am for you. And in verse 41, the story picks up, and notice what he says. He says this, And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times, and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Now you, you notice that there were three arrows in three days with three bows, and you know what that means. There's a lot of threes in the story. But David is falling on his face. And he bows three times, showing an unprecedented kind of respect for Jonathan. And then they arose and kissed. That was customary. They wept with one another, but David wept most, displaying David's deep affection for Jonathan. I also wonder if in this kiss there there might be some hint of, of what we read about in Psalm 2, where the nations, the kings are raging against God's anointed king. And they are ordered to come and kiss the son. And here we find David as that great son of God, the king who has come as the Messiah. And Jonathan is kissing him. And then Jonathan tells him to go in peace because they made an eternal covenant with one another between their homes. Now catch the beautiful irony of this. They depart. David running for his life. Jonathan returning home to who knows what kind of danger from his crazy dad. Both find danger all around themselves. It is not a a peaceful kind of situation that they are about to walk into. But here, notice, in the midst of this, peace is assured between the two of them. Is it the one safe refuge amidst the storm for them? It is. It's the place of safety and of rest, the place of peace and of steadfast love, It's the place where Jonathan knew that there was nowhere safer to be than in the covenant with God's king. Do do you see it? Danger's coming all around, but I have peace with God's king. I'm in a good place. Jesus would later tell his disciples in Luke 14, 26, in a verse that we just quoted, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. But I didn't read to you what comes after that in verses 31 to 33. Interesting verses. Here's what he goes on to say. Jesus goes on to say this right after this. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Speaking to these disciples, saying, imagine yourself as a king, and that you're going after a greater king. And as you go before that greater king, you know you have 10,000, he has 20,000. 
What are you trying to do when you go before this king? Aren't you seeking some way for peace with this great king? Well, isn't that exactly what Jonathan has done? He knows that he has the armies at his hand, and yet at the same time, he understands that there is a greater king that is before him, Messiah. And in this moment, when if there's anybody that should be scared for her life, his life, it's David. Jonathan's saying, promise me that you will not kill my children. That is a man who understands the power and authority of the king that he stands before. Do you know the power and authority of the king that you stand before in Jesus Christ? Do you know that you stand before a holy and righteous God as a rebel king yourself who needs to be made right with him, who needs to be brought to peace with him? And I love, I love the promise that we have in this new and better covenant that has come with this new and better Messiah, Jesus Christ. Paul tells us about what comes through that. He says, since therefore we have been justified by faith, faith in Christ, this good king, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through this later son of David. We have peace with God. That is the fruit of the new covenant of, with God's king or Christ Jesus. We have peace with him. We are no longer enemies but friends. And catch this, if we have peace with God, there is no better place to be. The world may rage around us, but we have peace with God. The world might rage around us and we might fear for our future, but our futures are safe and secure with God in Christ. Now as we think about this, you, you might be thinking, well, that, that's great, I have peace with God. I know that I have been loved by Christ, and I'm called to show steadfast love. But what does this mean for relationships with others here in reality? Well, I'm reminded of the covenant members of a church and the covenant that they make with one another here at Trinity Bible Church. Now, we don't have covenant friendships at Trinity Bible, but we do have covenant membership where we commit to love one another as Christ has loved us. And that love is a steadfast kind of committed love. We are a people that are different in many ways. Some of us more different than others, like me. Don't people like to think that? I'm always different than everybody else and more different than you are. But we are loving one another not because we all have the same hobbies, because we all play golf, or because we all love like the best football team on the planet, which is the Saints. That's not why we're here. It's not why I'm here, because y'all have good taste in football teams. No, we're not here because we all have the same job. We're here because we all have the same king, King Jesus. And because of his love for us, we love one another with a steadfast kind of love. Now, do you think about that when you vote new members in, like we did at our last Pulse meeting? Like, these are people that I'm going to show steadfast love to. I'm going to be part of showing steadfast love to this body. We're committing to love others as Christ has loved us. Do you look to love other people, members of this church, who you've committed in relationship with, who you have loved. Do you love them when times are good? That's kind of easy, right? Like, who doesn't like the winning team? Like, we love to celebrate success. Do you walk alongside them whenever their life falls apart? When the police are knocking on the door? When their marriage is crumbling? When other people are gossiping about them? Are you steadfast in your love for them? See, there's something beautiful and godly and Christ-like in that kind of love. Do you look to love other members when times are tough, just like you do when they are good? Do you love people when they are struggling financially? Do you look to steadfastly love other people when they are lonely? Do you look to encourage them and lift them up and build them up? Do you look to love others who are different than you with a steadfast kind of love? Because there is no greater difference than the difference between Christ and us, right? Because like he's sinless and we're sinners. Do you look to love others who are different than you? Do you look to love others steadfastly? Does your love look like God's love? 
Does it look like Jesus? See, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus is the great friend who laid down his life for you and me so that we could have a new and better covenant with God so that we can really experience just a taste of that great coming love that we will have with the Father when the Son returns for you and me. Let's be a place where that love is already breaking out. Will you pray with me?